2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We will pray first, and then we will read the Holy Word of God. Father, we come before your throne um, to hear your word, to drink deep of what you used our brother Paul to strengthen us for even this day, this moment. Father, give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see. And Father, let us take great joy in this. And Father, though we struggle... Father, we know that you are the author and the finisher of our faith. Help us, Lord, to rest in that assurance. Help us to draw to you and you alone. Help us to take our comfort from you and you alone. And Father, help us to see in this man, Paul, and in so many, the amazement of forgiveness. Help us, Lord. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of this amazing calling that you've poured upon your people this day and this time to your glory and to your praise in Christ's name. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you, sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excess of sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him, for to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. What we have here is an inside look at the Apostle Paul and how he's working through this. All right, I shared with you last week as we kind of laid the framework for this, that this man in the Corinthian church had confronted Paul face to face, had possibly embarrassed him, possibly insulted him in such a way that the Apostle Paul was moved to write a severe letter. But he has also confronted the church that they needed to deal with this man. All right. The Bible is very adamant that you do not bring an accusation against an elder to a leader in the church. All right. Unless you have two or three witnesses. And Paul was the founder of this church. He was the instrument that God had used to lay the foundation for the existence of these people in Corinth. But what had happened, and we looked at this in depth when we were studying 1 Corinthians, is that there were schisms had started developing. And schisms will always be an adamant sign of pride. And that's where you see what uh, Spiros Zodiades noted as personality cults. People say, I am of Paul, or I am of Peter, or I am of Apollos. And you see it today. I see it all over today. We have many Christians today in leadership positions who are published, who have written books, and we want to hear books. All right. I want to hear such and such because they wrote this really good book. Or I want to hear such and such because they wrote this really good book. Well, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. I read a lot of books. I do. And it's just part of what I do. But you will never get better than the Holy Scriptures. All right. And, and yet I watch people, they will go to blows over footnotes. And I'm saying, read the text, read the text. And the apostle Paul is bringing this about. Now, if you think about it, if you think of all the churches that the apostle Paul was involved in, all right, no church did he write more to than the Corinthians. 
These people were very dear to him. It is at a, oh, it is so awesome because you can see it in 1 Corinthians and you can see it in 2 Corinthians. When I took on 2 Corinthians, I wanted you and I to see it because when I look at this letter, I understand it that this is ministry. Okay? But you have to have 1 Corinthians because that's personal holiness. And if you don't have your ducks in a row, you don't want to step in to the battle. All right, please hear me on that, because when you look at this text, he's already showed you that his self-conscience, that that judge that only you and I have, I have a conscience, you have a conscience, and we can't get away from it. I can make you look and think you see what's going on, but if my conscience is bothering me, I know it. And the Apostle Paul said, you know what? What is going on? My conscience is clear even before God. And, and, and when you see that framework hanging out there, then all of a sudden it starts working and you start understanding it. This person, this individual, this man that he refers to in 5 through 11 had bought the deception There were people in the Corinthian church (coughs) that were saying that the Apostle Paul wasn't trustworthy. He said he was going to come back and see us, and he he didn't. So how can we trust him? But if he can't even keep his travel plans straight, how can I trust his message? And what you will find out throughout the history of the church, uh, through today, is that if you have a man who is standing firm on the truth of God, then they will try to attack his integrity, his character, because if I attack his integrity and his character, then I can discredit his message. And you see it across everywhere. I mean, everywhere. And and when I see these things, I think about my brother Paul. Because even though they were attacking him, he understood that he had already forgiven all right, because see, this text, I, I, I call it forgiveness, it's blessings. All right, because this is a good insight into the attitude of forgiveness. Please hear me well on this. I know a lot of people and I have witnessed many, many, many people over and over who says, well, I've forgiven them. And yet you watch them and you can tell that they haven't. And the reason is they never dealt with the attitude. Listen, if God holds one sin against you, do you understand the outcome? It's your damnation. So when you talk about forgiveness of God, I ask you but one question. Of what have you been forgiven? All sin. You have been given of sins you haven't even committed yet. And yet, I watch the church, and the church runs around as one of the most cold-hearted bunch of people I ever run into. They don't forgive nothing. They will tell you they forgive you. They will smile at you and forgive you. They will shake your hands. But I don't trust you after that. You know what's wrong? They have no attitude of forgiveness. No attitude of forgiveness. There are seven blessings in this text. There are seven benefits in this text of forgiveness. Okay? Therefore, there should be seven motives or there'll be seven benefits, seven reasons. And Paul uses his own life to illustrate this. See, in the church in Corinth, there was becoming... Division. And the false teachers were starting to get a foothold in because they were attacking the person of Paul. And the love that the Apostle Paul had for the Corinthians and the loyalty that the Apostle Paul had for the Corinthians was not being reciprocated. Paul had waited to write. He had possibly done a very quick trip and was confronted by these false teachers and this man and accused of being a charlatan. And what broke of Paul's heart was nobody in the congregation stood up to defend him. And that's amazing to me. 
But yet I've been around long enough to say it's not new. I have seen it on a regular basis. And he was awaiting because he had sent a letter, the severe letter he refers to. And we don't have that one, but he sent it by Titus and he was awaiting Titus's return to find out what the response was. And we looked at that last week in chapter seven. And as Paul teaches this simple truth on forgiveness, he taught it to the Corinthians. He's teaching it to you and I this day. And the deal is to restore this man. Because there are seven blessings that come from the appropriate attitude and action of forgiveness. You see them there. It will deflect pride. It will show mercy. It will restore joy. It will affirm love. It will prove obedience. It will restore fellowship. And it will beat Satan. Listen, one of the things that when I first started studying Paul, I always had it in my mind that he was kind of this cranky guy. I just, you know, you just, they're just little certain pieces of text you read. And you're like, man, that's, whew, that's tough stuff. Or, gee, I'll pass on that one. And, you know, but you, they're just certain phrases that he uses. You're like, ooh, ooh. But what I've learned is Paul was not committed to endless sorrow. You guys know what I'm talking about? I've seen them. Have you seen them? They're Christians, but gee, there's, it's, it's a commitment to sorrow. It's like one battle after the next battle after the next battle after the next battle. And, you know, but I'm going to present the pride of Christ pure and holy. I don't think so. And I actually, as I look at the Apostle Paul, I believe that the Apostle Paul was committed to joy. But we have to deal with sin. And normally what we do with it, what I have witnessed in my life is, let me deal with your sin. Right? Now let me tell you something. As small as we are, do you think that would bring me a lot of joy? So what I do, I deal with you to try to promote joy, and then I deal with my sin. Okay, I, I can only show you what God says. I can't make you do it. I can't make you believe it. I just say, here's what it says. All right. And I get great joy out of my time with the Lord and then sharing. Did you know this? Brings me great joy. Now, there's times I've watched people, people says, well, you know, what does it feel like when you, you know, you're up there and all them people are looking at you? You know what? I can tell whose toes I'm mashing because you can't hide it. I, I have seen this over and over again. You know, and it, you see them doing this or they'll get to. What are you looking for? Nothing. <laughs> I, maps. <laughs> I need a way out. Paul wanted them to know that if he ever caused them sorrow, the only reason that he caused them sorrow was to produce repentance. Okay? Why? Because if I preach a message and it causes you sorrow, then that means that you have an offense against God, which means you're having a joy problem. And sometimes it takes some loudmouth preacher to say, gosh, no wonder I'm not having any joy. But we spend so much time trying to keep everybody else walking in holiness that we miss it. You know, I was I was thinking about it. Linsky made a statement in one of his commentaries on this, and I thought it was kind of funny. He says in his quote, he didn't want to become overly associated with sorrow. Unquote. OK, have you ever seen Christians who seem overly associated with sorrow? Aren't they a blast to be around? So Paul urges that they. Chastening stopped on this man because he had repented and this man be fully restored to the communion of the church. See, 
when church discipline is exercised, um, I, I don't know why we've got such a skewed view of this thing, but when it, it is exercised, when the church confronts a situation, it is to restore the person. People don't understand it. Oh, they just kick everybody out. Well, Jiminy Cricket's brothers and sisters, let me share with you something. Have you arrived in perfection of your holiness yet? Then let me kick every one of you out. Well, that sounds brilliant, doesn't it? There's a whole new issue to church growth. The church is not the place for perfection. The church is the place to help you walk in a manner worthy. I, you know, I look at it, the church. Everybody says, well, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. No, the planet Earth is. Okay. The church is a place for healing, for restoration. The church is the place where I come and say, my God, my God. I have forsaken you. Draw me back. And yet I watch in the church today and we've missed that. We've absolutely missed it. See, we have to remember that no doubt Paul instructed them to deal with this man. This man was public in his confrontation of the Apostle Paul. He um, was straight in his face. He did it with a, an arrogance, a boldness, or whatever you wanted to call it. Um, and Paul says this man has to be dealt with disciplinary until he is brought to repentance. You know, it's, it's amazing to me if you think about it today. In the, the church in America, I, I know people who do not go to church on a, any kind of a basis, and they don't have no problem with it. Well, you know, and they'll come up with that brilliant phrase, I kind of worship in my own way. Didn't Eli's sons do that? I'm thinking that that was, they went into the contemporary worship thing. Anyway, um, and, and I sit there and I think, do you understand to punish a Christian biblically. Do you know what you do to him? You set him outside of the church. Why is such a large part of the evangelical community outside of the church? I, do you see what I'm trying to get out? I'm sitting there going, so you like punishment. Well, that's really not that big a deal. Really? Really? When the Apostle Paul was on the Damascus Road and Jesus confronted him, okay, do you know what Paul was doing? He's on his way to arrest Christians in Damascus, right? right? And he'd been doing a pretty good job of it. All right? And Jesus' words to him were, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Nope. Why are you persecuting me? And so Christians who want to be outside of the body of Christ want to be outside of Christ? I think they've got a bigger problem. Paul teaches this as a truth, and he's teaching this, is that this man has been confronted. It was done by the congregation. And sorrow had set in to the point it's a godly sorrow and it's actually drawing the man to repentance. All right. Now the church is, has another responsibility. It is the restoration of this. This man. You have to bring this person back into the body as if nothing happened. Well, but what if they do it again? Easy Jesus answered that. Seven times seventy. And then throw the bum out and he'll start at Second Baptist Church. No, you never stop. You do not forgive on the basis of if it's real or not. You forgive on the basis of repentance. Why? First thing we want to look at. It will... The first reason that we forgive, and our attitude is that of forgiveness for restoration. The first reason is that it will deflect... Our pride. Um, I was thinking I couldn't make up my mind if I wanted to use deflect our pride or deflect our self-pity. 
Okay, verse 5, look what it says here. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me. Stop right there. All right? You forgive and you have an attitude of forgiveness to defect your pride. Yours, brothers and sisters. Yours. One of the chief causes of an unforgiving heart is pride. It's pride. Okay? Your ego gets wounded. And you're not going to just take that. Have you ever heard this phrase? I can't believe they treated me that way. First sermon I ever preached. Ever preached. First sermon. All right. I walk from the pulpit headed for the back door. If you notice now, I don't go to the back door. That's a dangerous place. Guy stands up in the aisle, sticks his finger in my chest and cusses me. And you're like, wow, (laughs) you know, make a note. (laughs) He didn't like that. And I thought it was me. But then I've had a few other cases of it and realized that it's not just me. (laughs) See, somebody has done something to you and you don't like it. And you don't appreciate it. And you're not about to let go of it. You know what that is? That's a reaction of pride. It's a reaction of pride. And let me tell you something. When I watch this happen in the venue of forgiveness, it runs the spectrum. From wallowing in self-pity... To violent retaliation. And anything and everything in between. And it's all based on one single issue. Poor, pitiful me. And you know what? The Apostle Paul here, and just in that first phrase, he had none of it. None of it. There is no self-glory in the Apostle Paul. There is no self-protection. There is no ego. There is no pride. There is no self-pity. There is no vengeance. There is no retaliation. For the Apostle Paul, he had no place in his heart at all. Nowhere. He didn't want any pity. See, the, 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 the Paul party... I am of Paul would have seen this man and understood that they were to rebuke him. And guess what? It's Katie Bartador. This man will wish for crucifixion time. We get done. Tell me you ain't seen this. You get fans and they come up to you. And what will they say? I I can't believe you were treated that way. I, I can't believe that you're enduring such suffering. I cannot believe how you're so steadfast. I can't believe that the anguish that these people would have caused you. And the whole time that person's going, bring it on, bring it on. Amen, brother. Amen. How can I tolerate all this? I've seen it. I've seen it. I had a person stand up in the middle of my confirmation as pastor and says, by you marrying that woman, you made her a whore. I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad I signed up for this thing. Do you understand that? You will be attacked. You walk in his holiness. You will be persecuted. But let me tell you something. If your attitude of forgiveness goes out the door, then you're no different than any lost human being. And you are of no value to the Lord. And you are of no value to the church. And you are of no value to yourself. Because if you have a pity party, who shows up? Just you. Just you. Paul didn't want no pity. And and yet, I have watched people who have had conflicts, and immediately what do they do? 
try to draw allies. Why? Well, I just want somebody to go, well, that was awful. That was horrifying. I just can't believe that you're suffering like that. It's all right. Keep going. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm bearing this cross. I understand this cross. What'd you say? Oh, yes, yes, sir. You poor thing. How you have endured. Oh, how you have suffered. How you have shown yourself so noble to endure such pain. And the whole time that person's going, Amen, brother. Loving every word of it. Paul wanted nothing to do with it. Paul wanted nothing to do with it. Paul says, if any has caused sorrow, he has called sorrow not to me. Not to me. If any has called sorrow, you know, this phrasing in the original language is kind of cool. Um, it has to do that there is a, a, a condition that is assumed. Okay? Sorrow. Something is, is here. Someone has caused sorrow. Okay, it's written in the perfect tense. Okay, and in the perfect tense means that there's an ongoing continual sorrow, sorrow and that's a reality. All right? This person has called, caused sorrow. I acknowledge And I also acknowledge that it's an ongoing effect. But I want you to know. He has caused no sorrow to me. Okay, so he's saying here is the sorrow. Here is the effect. It's ongoing, but it isn't to me. You know what? When as soon as I read that, I immediately look at it and says, you know what? This diffuses it. Just like that. Yes, this is a problem. Yes, there is sorrow here. No, it is not to me. No, it is not to me. Listen, have you ever seen the people? Well, maybe you haven't. Those who want to turn the screws down. You know what? I got somebody. It's funny. You see somebody who gets caught for stealing. And you immediately want to just crank it down, right? But what do you do with the one who's coveting? They're a little harder to spot, aren't they? And you know what? If you look at somebody who falls into adultery, we want to take them out and what? Execute and make an example of them. But if somebody's coveting, Well, it's not really that big a deal. If somebody's materialistic, they'll they'll grow out of it. How weird is that? Because all of a sudden you become judge and jury. And this one, this one here is awful. This one here, well, I do it on Thursdays. (laughs) What can I say? And yet, when you have the person who has had this offense come to them, you will have people who will want to ally with them and they will want to cause people grief. And listen, you have people who would look at the Apostle Paul, have an overwhelming love and overwhelming care and compassion for this man and will want to defend him to the death. And Paul says, this man has repented... And restore him. That, just that little phrase. He takes basically takes the sword right out of their hands. They're disarmed. They have absolutely nothing they can do anymore. Paul's not offended. There is sorrow here. We was there when the guy afflicted Paul. Oh well. Paul says. No big deal. See Paul is looking at it and saying. You know what I'm not taking this thing personally. You ever thought about that? 
And that immediately minimizes his personal sorrow. This church hurt him. And yet, it's not personal. I've been through some things as a pastor. I've been, I have some friends who are dear pastors who have been doing this longer than I have. And they've been through some things. And I remember calling them at times under certain circumstances. And, uh, and I say, hey, uh, you know, I'm going through such and such. And he says, well, I'm going to tell you the secret to it. And I said, what's that? He says, just don't take it personally. Well, okay. So I remember this instant that you went through this stuff. And did you take it personally? He says, you betcha. He says, but God brought me through it and I don't take it personally. You teach the word, they're going to shoot the messenger. Or shoot at the messenger. See, Paul understood that he was not going to hang out in self-pity. He's not looking around for a bunch of attaboys. You know, I fought the good fight. I did this and I did that and they just don't appreciate me. See, Paul understood that any personal anguish, even though he was a target, he wasn't going to take it personally. I don't know. Maybe you've never had a saint break your heart. I have a list. That you thought you were on the same page and all of a sudden they started eating the book or something. I don't know what went wrong and they're gone. Paul says, there is no bitter resentment here. I'm not seeking a vendetta on 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 a personal level. I'm not wanting my pound of flesh. Pay a price. No matter what the man did to him, the embarrassment, the insulting of him publicly, um, the attempts to discredit the Apostle Paul, this man playing into the false teachers, and he's even wanting to lead the church in the direction of the deceivers. And he was not going to take that personally, and he was not going to let anyone use him as part of it being personal. I mean, listen, there had to be grief here. There had to be some embarrassment here. And and it was caused to the apostle. And the apostle Paul and basically in just that little phrase right there. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow, not to me. Right there, he says, you know what? Even though I have anguish, even though it broke my heart and even though it was embarrassing and, 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 and I had to confront it. Paul says it is not and never has been and never will be important. See, when someone offends you, you all of a sudden it becomes important. And yet Paul here softens the charge against this repentant offender. He leaves the church to deal with the man. And yet, by deflecting pride, and let's be realistic, that church had a pride problem. Read 1 Corinthians. I mean, when you start corrupting spiritual gifts to show off, (laughs) you got a pride problem. And Paul says, you don't have to carry out some kind of personal agenda on his behalf. The man has repented. Let it go. They don't have to do something for him. Paul says, I don't need you to avenge me. He doesn't take it personally. And he doesn't have to do something. And you don't have to do something for my sake. That's pretty good, isn't it? See, Paul says, you know what? He didn't cause sorrow to me. See, Paul had learned. A long time ago, long before this episode, how to live with nothing and how to live with abundance. He even speaks of it in chapter 12 of this letter, chapter 12, verse 10. It's an amazing thing. I'm pretty sure he's referring to this. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. 
See, Paul had a complete understanding of pride, the evilness of pride, and yet how to defeat it. Paul understood it. It wasn't about him. We say it this way. Sticks and stones may break my bones. Brothers and sisters, I want to share this because in the years that I've been the pastor of this church, I have been called liberal. I have been called a Pharisee. I've been called the Antichrist. And so I've gone from liberal to Antichrist, from Pharisee, you know, and you just sit there and go, give me a break, people. I mean, I've had people who have left here when I was teaching on spiritual gifts and they all left here mad at me. And they said, well, he doesn't believe in spiritual gifts. And every message that I preached on spiritual gifts, I start the text out with, I want you to first and foremost know I believe in spiritual gifts. And I kept thinking, is he deleting that? (laughs) So I got online and listened to it and said, sure enough, there goes Terry. I believe in spiritual gifts. And so I got a whole group of people in Casserole running around right now saying, Terry doesn't believe in spiritual gifts. And you just sit there and go, oh, whatever. And see, I know what the issue is. All right? And I'm not going to share that. But they just got mad. No. I ain't sharing it. Why? I don't believe in spiritual gifts. <laughs> Everybody knows that. Do you, but you see what I'm trying to get at? You get all of this stuff and it comes at you. And what you realize is when you stand on truth, you will paint a big bullseye. I mean, I have never published a book. I do not have a church growth system. I haven't got a mega church. I don't have a TV program. Why are you shooting at me? That must be my Learjet. Just kidding. You got a Learjet? Yeah, but I can't fly. I just push it. See, Paul says, I don't take it personally. I want you to think about that for a second. Because we all sit there and say, well, you know, I'm just not going to take it personally. Really? Let me share with you something. Paul says, I don't take it personally. You know what? Jesus said, I ain't taking it personally. You know what is even crazier than that? When the stones are crushing off of Stephen, he isn't taking it personally. You got that? There's no personal offense here. This is a virtue that only comes through divine intervention, brothers and sisters. It's the noblest. To rise above the offense and to rise above the offender. Take yourself out of the victim status. Please. In our culture today, we tout, we lift up, we encourage wallowing in victimization. I I mean, I, I listen to people talk about slave reparations. Really? I never had one. I don't know anybody in my family ever had one. Now, I've been treated like one. But I never had a problem with that. And I don't understand it because it's just, it's poor, pitiful me. You don't understand. Really? I do understand this. The nature of man. If you look in the New Testament, anytime you see a personal pronoun, I, me, mine, something like that. Okay. It's always translated the same word. Epsilon, gamma, omega. In the Greek, you know what that is? Ego. And I've never met anybody with a low ego. See, self-pity is an act of pride. And when I see people who are in this, you don't understand how I've suffered and you don't understand what they did to me and you don't understand the heartache I had to go through and the mental anguish that I had to go through and all this other stuff. All I know is that that person is exercising for the whole world to see evidence of their fallenness in unbelievable pride. Self-pity, wounded egos. Wounded person is one who cannot arise above the offense 
And all they are demonstrating is utter sinfulness. God, Paul was a godly man, a noble Christian. And the biggest key to understanding that is his humility. To wallow in his pride on a public embarrassment. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 4? It's a very small thing that I should be examined by you or any human court. It's a good phrase, good thought. Somebody can say something about me. Ain't know what I do these days? Big deal. You should have seen me before I got saved. I had a guy one time told me, he says, you know what? You have become an idolater. I said, me? He said, yeah. He says, you worship the Bible. <laughs> I used to worship Corvettes. <laughs> so I'm doing better. What's the big deal? See, and, and the thing is, we like for people to make us think that we're a victim. And yet, yet sorrow, yes. Yes, yes, there's sorrow. Paul says, but not to me. See, that's not Paul's concern. Look what he says here. Some degree there's sorrow in order not to say too much, but to all of you. See, he understood. Listen, Paul understood. He left Corinth and said, you got to confront this man. And he knew that there was going to be sorrow in the confrontation. Even though the attack was on the apostle Paul, he says, you know what? You guys still got to deal with it. The man's still with you. And that brings sorrow. Some degrees, if you read that there's qualifiers in this to all of you, my concern isn't me. My concern is you. Why? But remember, he didn't want to write 2 Corinthians until he saw how they responded to his little short visit and the the severe letter. And that's when Titus came back and gave him the update, said, hey, they've changed. They've repented. Okay, but then he uses this phrase here, and it's really cool because he said in some degree, and then he uses this phrase, in order not to say too much. You know what that means? It's, it's, it's great in the original. Uh, what he's trying to say, in some degree, it's limited. Okay, this sorrow is limited. This situation is limited. In order not to say too much, don't exaggerate the point. Have you ever seen that? Yes, this individual, this man has caused sorrow. But it's a limited extent. Let's not exaggerate it. Let's not turn the molehill into a mountain. A crusade in the church to right a wrong. Oh, give me a break. How many times have you been hurt and you make more out of this than needs to be made? You ever thought about it? I had people leave this church because they said, you know what? I seen you downtown and I waved at you and you didn't wave. I didn't see you. Well, you should have been paying attention. I didn't want to run over anybody. It's just a strange thing. Okay? Because next time it could be you I hit. Sorry. But I waved before I run over you. That's a molehill out of what? Sure, there's sorrow for you, Paul says. You have to deal with this guy, he's in your fellowship. He's a brother in Christ. You've got to confront him and you have to go through the disciplinary process. Listen, brothers and sisters, I have gone into bars. I remember going into a bar one night because the husband called, said his wife was out. And so I'm I'm not a rocket scientist. I just went downtown. I seen her little van out in front of a bar and I walked in the bar and said, excuse me. Okay, and I took her home. All right. I t- don't take pleasure in that. I had to holy oh, isn't that great? Okay, it is kind of funny to watch the blood leave their face, but 
I've done this. Oh, you know, I can't even tell you how many times I remember going to a house and getting a young lady who was living with a guy. And I said, you can't be here. And, and me and one of the other elders went and, and, and literally got her out and we got her a house and she lived there and still fell apart. But we did it. I don't take any pleasure in that. I don't want to do that. That's, there's no joy in that. But you still do it. Why? I want you to know the joy of your salvation and that relationship with our Savior that just can't be stolen. Don't make a molehill out of it. I don't run around and tell everybody, tomorrow I shall go save a woman from adultery. I don't say that. I think about the attacks that I've had on me. I don't even tell my wife 90% of it. Why? What good does it do? It doesn't do any good. You know what? You got attacked. Why? You're standing on truth. Keep standing on truth. You're still going to get attacked. They don't like your Jesus. But you know what? They didn't like him when he was here. You really think they're going to like his representatives? I don't think so. But they can't get at him, so they're going to aim at you. And you're going to take it personally? We discipline to bring him to repentance. Paul says, you know what? I know this isn't a happy thing. This isn't a fun thing. I don't do this because I'm bored. But he says, don't overdo the significance of this. Yes, he's affected you in a sorrowful way. Minimize it. Minimize it. You know, and I've watched people take some stuff and it becomes this controlling issue in, in their minds. I need, I, need to, I need to fight this. And it really isn't that big a deal. It's great. Thought is, get on with life, man. He has repented. I don't want you to do anything on my behalf. And that, don't make a big deal out of it. Don't make more out of it than you should. You know what? If you think about it, it's a greater approach. Paul will not allow his ego to get involved. When you do not allow your ego to get involved, you deflect pride. You will deflect self-pity. That is true forgiveness. And if you want to get even, or if you want to push the issue and all the rest of it, just know this, your pride is whipping your butt. You know what? I was thinking about the Apostle Paul. And I just want you to think about this from, for just a second. One of the things that I noticed about the Apostle Paul in my studies of him, he is a very, very hard man to offend. You ever thought about that? I, I think about the stuff that was going on in his life and what he endured, and I don't ever really see him being offended about it. He won't take an offense. What a virtue. You can't offend him. Well, he just doesn't care. Very difficult to offend him. Very, very difficult. Now, listen, you didn't go against Christ. You didn't go against the word. But when it came to him personally, oh, well. Paul would not allow his ego to express itself. You know, I've only went to third heaven. Things I got up there I can't even talk about, so I'm back. <laughs> what? He had nothing but love and forgiveness for the offender. And it was from the heart. But he did want discipline done until there was repentance. Because repentance brought restoration. And he wasn't worried about where they restored it to him. He wanted a restoration between this man's actions and the Lord Jesus Christ who saved him. See, listen, let me share with you something on that, th- that mind th- set. Because the crucifiers never asked for forgiveness before they hung Christ on the cross. He just forgive them. The murderers of Stephen didn't say, now, Stephen, we're going to kill you. Will you forgive us? 
they never asked him that. Paul forgave from the heart a man who wasn't, he wasn't going to let this man steal his joy. He wasn't going to let this man steal his usefulness. He wasn't going to let this man become uh, this reigning issue in the church. And yet the church has moved to sorrow. How many times do we forgive? Let me give you an illustration that um, is really awesome. Uh, We kind of overlook it, I think, at times. It had to do with uh, sibling rivalry. Anybody know about sibling rivalry? comes out of Genesis 45, beginning at verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Okay, the youngest, dad's favorite. They wanted him dead. There was a hatred for the little baby brother. Wasn't there? It's nasty. And yet they meet again. They couldn't kill him because they're like, man, I don't know if my conscience is going to go that far. So we'll sell him to slave traders. <laughs> we'll never see him again. Life is good. Then a great famine takes over the land. They show up in Egypt because Egypt's the only place that's got any food. Guess who the prime minister of Egypt is? Whoops. <laughs> now let me tell you something if you're the prime minister of Egypt you are Pharaoh's right hand man you are in a position of vengeance I'm your brother and now then Joseph says now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life Where's the guy's ego? I can interpret dreams and that got me into trouble with Pilate's wife. Gee, went to jail on that one. Every time I turn around, it's just going downhill. And it's all because of these idiot brothers of mine sold me to slave traders. How could they treat the little brother that way? You know what he says? He said, no, I'm here because God sent me here. He wanted me to preserve. God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant in earth and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Now, therefore, it is not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all the household and a ruler of all the land of Egypt. Where's the ego in that? Where's the ego? It's deflected. Why? There's no self-pity. This is perfect. So here's what happens. All the family shows up. They're all there. Dad's back. Right? And they live in the land of Goshen and they prosper and they flourish and life is good. And then dad dies. Right? Dad dies. He says, you know what? Dad asked that he be buried back in Canaan. Let's take the family. We'll all go back to Canaan. So they take dad back. They bury him in Canaan. And you know what the brothers think? Gigs up. Dad's dead. You know what that means. Joseph's going to get his 22 pounds of flesh. That's their concern. Here's what he said. Verse 1, chapter 50. Joseph fell on his father's face. He wept over him and he kissed him. Joseph commanded the servants and the physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. <clears throat> for 40 days they required. They did all that stuff, right? Okay. Then he move on over there to verse 15. Joseph's brothers fall, saw that their father was dead. And they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? Dad's out of the picture now. Uh-oh, we're sitting ducks. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father's charged before he died saying, thus... You shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you. See, they make this up. All right. Forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, 
Please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God, of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. It broke his heart. He says, we've been living together this long and you guys still think that I'm carrying a grudge. Let me tell you something. I've seen the body of Christ do it. Over and over and over and over. Here's what Joseph's response was. Joseph wept when they spoke and then his brothers also came. They fell down before him. Behold, your servants. And Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for I am in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. He comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. That's the action of forgiveness becomes from the right attitude. The attitude was there. He says, you know what? This was awful. I wouldn't wish this on anybody, but I see what God did. He prepared the way for it. And you know what? That's what you and I should be doing because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's only the Spirit that saved Jesus Christ and saved you and me through his death. And Joseph did it. And I guarantee you nobody in this room was treated the way Joseph was treated. He wept and he kissed them. And he says, I will comfort you and I will speak kindly to you. I've seen people say, I forgive you. I'm just not going to talk to them. That's a total absence of self-pity. He spoke kindly to him. He comforted him. See, here's what I want you to think. And we'll close it now. Forgiveness, true forgiveness. I'm not saying, you know, yeah, I forgive you. Forgiveness usually walks out before the offender wants to be forgiven. Okay, Jesus forgive them. They didn't ask for it. And you know what? It comforts and speaks kindly. Forgiveness frees you from the bitterness of pride. It frees you from the bitterness of self-pity. It frees you from the bitterness of vengeance. And all of those, whether it's vengeance, self-pity, pride... All lead to despair. Alienation, broken relationships, the loss of joy. So I will conclude with one simple thought. It's just great to forgive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the examples you've given us in your holy scriptures. And Father, I pray that if any of us here this day are holding a a grudge, um, if we're, we're holding an offense... Today would be the day of forgiveness. Father, we lay it down. Father, knowing that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. And Father, may we be known as a group of people who forgive in the meekness and the tenderness of which Jesus Christ gave us. Father, may we be known not as people who are worried about themselves, but our main concern is for others. Let us rest in that assurance. Let us rest in that power. Let us rest in that that glory that would only come from you and you alone. Father, as the Apostle Paul could never be offended. Father, may we, this day, never be offended. To you, Lord, you alone. In Christ's name, amen.